Hey, I'm Karen Cubides, a music-obsessed entrepreneur and educator who calls Music City home. My career started in Boston, where I found my real passion, working behind the scenes in the music industry. I've had the honor of working with elite performers and educators. Consider this your go-to guide for all things healthy, wealthy, and wise. So, get comfy, because we're about to uncover some surefire ways to transform not only your career, but also your life. This is the Musician's Guide Podcast. Hi friends, welcome to another episode of the Musician's Guide Podcast. My name is Karen and I am your host. I am sitting here with one of my favorite conductors and humans, Kevin Fitzgerald. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. So happy you're back. So this is Kevin's second time on the podcast. Um, And you're here in town in Nashville for a photo shoot. Yes, we are here with the dogs and Kurt's here. And we are so excited. Yeah, I am so pumped. So for today's conversation, um, you know, if you want to hear Kevin's backstory, Jess, we'll put it in the show notes um, because I literally can't remember the episode. But we're just going to dive into just more deeper, vulnerable stuff today. Um, I am grateful for for the opportunity to pick the brain of a conductor, especially in the area of vulnerability and authenticity and the ego and all that stuff. So um, let's just start with like maybe what was the biggest blessing or silver lining of COVID for you? Oh, well, I would say the most general thing is that I was because, you know, all of the the calendar just opened up and everything was canceled or at least was being done online. So I was just at home sitting with myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a lot of time to like think and look in the mirror and like assess and a lot of stuff was coming up and coming up for me, you know, emotionally and um, obviously there was a lot of uncertainty and fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had the opportunity to, you know, get into some therapy, uh, to start off. I actually had a couple different therapists for a minute and then I started actually coaching. I was coaching with someone else, uh, from like January to March before the pandemic started. And then this fall I started working with you, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just kind of accelerated everything. So yeah, just the ability to, it's a privilege to be able to like have the time and bandwidth to like assess what's going on with you yourself and, um, you know, take stock and try to make changes. Yeah, for sure. So in that like self-discovery process that you've been on, like what has come up career-wise? Like what are some areas that maybe you're now exploring that you hadn't considered before? Good point. Um, well, um, I mean, I think viewing myself as more of a servant to others, I think has been a very, um, even at the highest levels of music making, you know, you're still serving your musicians in front of you and the score and the composer and the audience, you know, mm-hmm. um, if you think of yourself in that way, everything kind of lines up properly. Yeah. Um, and the ego is kind of put in the box, you know, it doesn't really run the show when you're thinking about it. Uh, other fo- others focused um i actually started a coaching business mm-hmm. um and that's been really cool uh thanks to you for your encouragement on that and i've been working with conductors um and they're from all different ranges and backgrounds so some people are in grad school some people are trying to get into grad school recently had several people clients get into their top choice so that was awesome and then you know working with educators in the public school system and at the college level and um some people who are transitioning from, you know, maybe the college uh, area, you know, universities to professional work. And so it's just been really fun because, again, I'm, I'm you know, contributing to someone's 
someone else than myself, you know, and mm-hmm. that's been really, really beneficial for me psychologically, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to pick your brain on like why we have so many different schools of conducting. Like why is there such a stark difference between an orchestral conductor as there is a choral, as there is, you know, opera, wind band, like what's the deal? I am so glad you asked me that question. Um, in my opinion, there should not be such a huge distinction. A lot of these labels are very new, created in the last 50 years, and most of those labels come out of academia. Um, We need Mm. degree programs so that we can train people. And yes, there is a point to having a specificity, right? Like if you want to conduct choirs, you should specialize in choral music, right? You should be studying that repertoire. But uh, in my opinion, this this siloing off of these different types of conducting and I'm doing types and air quotes, I think is really only just harmed the, the, um, the art form because we could be learning so much more from each other, from the different types of specializations. Um, if there was way more communication and way more crossover, um, you know, Eastman, where I did my undergrad, their graduate program is probably the most has the most crossover that I've seen. You mm-hmm. have people doing all all types of things. If you if you're getting a DMA in choral or wind ensemble, you can take a orchestral conducting class with the graduate orchestra and the conducting professor, uh, and that applies kind of all around. So, uh, I think at the highest level, people know the truth that mm-hmm. conducting is conducting and musicianship is musicianship and leadership is leadership. Yeah. Um, I think that you know, there's a lot of self-preservation, right? Like if you if you are a, uh, air quotes, wind conducting professor or a choral conducting professor or an orchestral conducting professor, you know, you want to maintain that, that structure because it makes it, first of all, it's probably what you went through and it makes sense to you, but it maintains your, your lane. Like this person, this student studies with me and this student studies with that person. And this is what I teach. And this is what I don't teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and it clarifies things. And any, anytime we partition, it clarifies things and we gain some, some sense of, uh, clarity or, uh, safety or organization, but we also lose, Mm-hmm. something too and we lose this idea that we're all on the same page we're all trying to make music we're all trying to inspire people to play their best and to really bring the intentions of the composer to life and that's universal yeah. um, no matter what piece you're looking at so you know that's something that I really want to help break down through my career um, is that you know you can through your own work and discipline and seeking out help you can conduct any piece you want you can put together a choir and conduct something you know the great conductors don't need a choral conducting degree to conduct the Brahms Requiem with a choir and an orchestra yeah um for some reason because of how the structure of the music world is um most people most of those crossover moments kind of happen in the orchestral world like the Berlin Phil just did you know with Zubin Mehta at Expecto by Messiaen which is a wind piece mm-hmm. part pairing that with Bruckner 9 right so there's kind of more crossover happening in that realm but there's not as much crossover happening maybe on a wind concert or a band concert where you'd have a piece with a small string section or um, you know there's several pieces for winds brass percussion, cellos and basses. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually in South America, uh, wind orchestra has cellos and basses. So, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot more room for crossover and um, collaboration and learning from one another. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that if we can start to do that more in the academic world and also offering opportunities for grad students and 
um, educators and whoever wants to take, you know, a workshop or a masterclass, they're not just doing, you know, one thing. If there could be a choral component and an orchestra component and a wind ensemble component, like, I think that would be so much more eye-opening and educational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so amazing. Thank you for sharing all of that. How does this, you know, desire to have greater crossover um, affect and, and kind of seep into your coaching? Because I feel like, you know, we look at you as an orchestral conductor and that appears to be from a perspective and perception on the internet to be like the fanciest route to go. Um, how how do you work with wind band and choral and, and all your clients that maybe have already like an inherent chip on their shoulder that they had no idea about? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and this whole idea of classifying and ranking, you know, that is just bad news bears, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> and it causes people trauma. I mean, I even remember at Interlochen when we were there together, like the top players were in the orchestra. Yeah. And the lower players were in, you know, who lower ranking people in the audition were in the in the band. And that's so backwards for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but that makes people think implicitly from day one, like, oh, orchestra's harder. When in fact, usually the band repertoire is so much more virtuosic for the wind players. And you have to tune with double the amount of people. And I'm not right. saying, again, I'm not trying to say one's harder than the other. They're just they're just slightly different in their their um, what skills you need to develop. But all the skills kind of go together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a... Ch- and, and so that all brings me to say, sorry, I kind of interrupted myself, that a lot of people, you know, they come out thinking that orchestra is snobby and it's elitist yeah. and it's not focused on, you know, the people in the group. Uh, and that's just simply not true, even though there might be some organizations that kind of pursue that route of marketing. Um, in my opinion, it shouldn't be like that. Um, but a lot of my clients, you know, they say like, oh, I, you know, I have a career as a collegiate band director, but I want to learn more about the orchestra repertoire or, um, you know, I've always, I've conducted an orchestra once or twice and I really loved it. And, um, or they ask me, you know, a lot of my conversations with my clients start off with this question. They're like, well, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a degree in wind conducting, like what can I learn from you kind of, or they write me off. You know, some people have, you know, said like, you know, whether they say it directly or not, like, oh, you know, I don't think that what you have to offer matters. And I'm like, well, first of all, like, I'm sorry you feel that way, but (laughs) two, like, you know. Uh, just because a piece of information or a group, a set of beliefs um, differ from what um, you've been taught, um, refusing to acknowledge them and learn about them doesn't make them less valid in the rest of the world. (laughs) If that makes sense. So like if I decide to not learn a certain thing and I personally decide that it's like not relevant to me, that doesn't mean that everyone else in the world who has access to the information is not going to feel that it's relevant. So I don't think I'm talking kind of in a circle here, but uh, I think there's a lot of self-preservation mm-hmm. that goes on. People don't want to learn something that might contradict what they previously believed. That's just, you know, yeah. there's a bi- implicit, excuse me, bias there. Um, and they'd ra- some people would rather, you know, blame any anything else for their situation than their own training. You know, that's really hard to do, especially if you've been doing it for a long time. So to get help or to just get a second opinion or try to learn some new things uh, at any age, especially if you're mid-career, a lot of my clients are mid-career, you know, like that's a hard thing to do because your ego has been really focused on like you're there Mm -hmm. and having to say like, no, I actually need to go back and change some things or not even change things, but just, you know, question 
what you've believed and what you've been doing. Yeah. Question the source. I love that. That's, that's really hard and, and really interesting. Um, how have you navigated the, the topic of vulnerability and as you're, you know, you've slowed down this past year and, you know, just done a lot of inner work and, and just kind of figured out this, this new level of your career. Um, how has that shown up for you? Mm. Well, um, I started this year with a mindset of I would do anything to be successful, mm-hmm. period. Even if that meant completely negating who I am as a human being, completely going against my values, completely putting myself in a situation that doesn't serve me as a person or that is, you know, co- contradictory to what I believe. Um, and now I can say that that is not the case. Like, yeah. I have values and I know what is important to me and what is not important to me and I know I'm willing to maybe forego an opportunity if it doesn't line up with what I think I should be doing and my what I need as a human and what I need for my family and what I need to be able to do financially um I have a I have through loving myself and accepting myself which I know sounds so cliche but it's totally true like um I'll back up and talk about that in a second, like the self-love, because that comes from self-knowledge. You can't really love yourself if you don't know yourself. And that yeah. was my biggest issue, mm. is that I didn't know myself at all. Yeah. Like, at all. Like, I thought I did. I could write you a novel about who I am, who I who I was, but yeah. about half of the things in there were aspirational. They were things that I wanted to be. Yeah. It was like I was writing down the story of a different person's life, you know what I mean? As opposed to writing down what is truly true in this moment right now. And a lot of that had to do with working on my past. Yeah. Working through my past. And again, that sounds cliche, but it's so true. Um, and processing it and like f- it, therapy, coaching, you know, all that stuff uh, has been huge. So. Once you know yourself a little bit better and you can actually start to love that person that you that you now are in touch with, then little things like the a, a face that a musician makes while you're playing or a scheduling problem or a problem with the music or, um, you know, scheduling, like having to come up with a program in one day. These little things like, yeah, they're not great, but they don't trigger me as bad. I'm so much more even keel, mm. you know, because it's coming from like this grounded place of like it's gonna be okay and knowing your worth you know that's the other thing like I felt like before I did this work I was like clinging to like every single thing that I thought validated me mm-hmm. and my worth and now that I have this inner inner worth and I'm still working on it it's a daily battle but like I don't feel like I need XYZ job I don't feel like I need to be a certain way to like stand in my abilities and my talents and my like personhood you know what yeah. i mean so mm. that was been like the biggest thing and so you can only imagine those of you sitting at home like how that can translate into a conducting yeah. you know because you are standing in front of everyone and if you're not in your personhood you're you're pulling from nowhere like yeah. you're driving on empty right um and somehow you're still going like the engine is on fire yeah right um so this has been so like good. um really life-changing and I could feel the difference in January when I conducted ASO completely. Yeah. Like it was like night and day from the last time I conducted them. So that's so good. So we're going to pause right here and leave everyone on that cliffhanger of um, self love and, and that journey. But. 
stay tuned for the part two of this interview. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks.